Hey listeners, it's Brian Walsh here. Before we get to today's podcast, I'd like to get your feedback. Yes, you. What do you like about the Impact Briefing? What about other Impact Alpha podcasts? How might we improve? Please take a moment to drop us an email. You can send it to podcast at impactalpha.com with any ideas, suggestions, criticisms, praise, or feedback of any stripe so we can ensure that we are delivering value to you, our dedicated listeners. Once again, that email address is podcast at impactalpha.com. Thanks so much. And now let's get to the show. From the newsroom of Impact Alpha, I'm Brian Walsh, and this is your Impact Briefing for Friday, February 24th. Today, the roundtable is back together to discuss the role that private equity plays in institutional impact investing. Imogen Rose Smith is an Impact Alpha contributing editor. Hi, Imogen, and welcome back. Hi, Brian. Good to be here. And David Bank is Impact Alpha's editor and CEO. Hi, David. Hey, Brian. Hey, Imogen. It's great to have the band back together again. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. 2023 is shaping up to be the year of the S. That's the social in ESG. This week's Agents of Impact call took up a range of policies at play in Washington, D.C. In the coming months, human capital disclosure rules are expected from the SEC, and the Community Reinvestment Act is up for reform. The Community Reinvestment Act has been pivotal in driving bank capital for community resiliency. And there are ambitious new proposals to mobilize financing for business transitions to employee ownership, as Ownership America's Jack Moriarty explained. The problem is there's no capital. There is, there's no investment capital at scale in the employee ownership field that can help enable the, the financing of these businesses from the owners, from the sellers to their employees. And that's where there's a, just a remarkable impact investment opportunity. You can catch the full replay of the call and the recap on impactalpha.com. Opportunity International raised $101 million to boost livelihoods in low-income countries. The Chicago-based nonprofit lender aims to de-risk loans to smallholder farmers and small and micro-businesses. It works in countries such as Ghana, Mozambique, Colombia, and India to provide guarantees, interest rate subsidies, and other forms of catalytic capital to de-risk loans from local banks. Since 1972, Opportunity and its partners have dispersed $19 billion in loans. Investors are demanding better impact data. The Tipping Point Fund, backed by the Amidera Network and other donors, is backing 16 organizations to boost standardization, disclosure, and comparability of impact data. For example, 60 decibels will expand its microfinance social performance index. As You Sow will extend its S&P 500 racial justice scorecard. And XBRL International is establishing a registry for sustainability reports. And take your pick, shorts or skis. Impact investors are gathering next week in Utah and Mexico, and Impact Alpha will be on the case. In Utah, the Sorensen Impact Summit is taking up urban regeneration, rural economic development, and other strategies for social and racial equity. In Mexico, the Latin American Impact Investing Forum, also known as the FLEA, will showcase the boom in impact investing across Latin America. We'll have coverage of both in the brief next week. 
Now it's time for our roundtable, and I'm joined once again by Imogen Rose-Smith and David Bank. Now, David, over the last few years, private equity firms have been moving into ESG and impact investing. What do you make of the big money and the big claims being made by these firms? Well, Brian, one of the things that's interesting is that many of these firms are now publicly listed. And so they are they have reporting requirements that, you know, private equity firms, you know, didn't used to have in the past. And over the past week or so, um, they've been holding analyst calls. We were taken by the way in which many of these firms were now touting not only their climate uh, funds, uh, which, you know, have gotten a lot of attention in the last couple of years as they've climbed to, to, to new heights, you know, seven and a half billion dollars for Brookfield and something similar for TPG. But now they're actually touting their impact funds and their impact investing as well. And in fact, TPG's John Winklered said there's been a seismic shift and said that if you looked at the sectors you would want to be in as an investor, that they have a, a big overlap with, with impact investing sectors. Um, so all of that, of course, you know, is still to be taken with a large grain of salt, but there does seem to be now a way in which folks are touting impact alpha. So, so finally, uh, the, the market is catching up to what uh, you've been promulgating uh, through the pages of Impact Alpha for, for many years now. The thing that we've said for a long time and that others have, have, have made the point as well is you can't just report the impact of your impact fund and of your impact deals. Um, these are obviously much larger firms that are spread across different kinds of funds and different asset classes and whatnot. And you really have to look at the overall impact of the portfolios, you know, even in the parts that they're not uh, holding up for in, in their impact reports. And so, um, you know, there's still a, a way in which, you know, the impact uh, ethos, as it were, but also, you know, reporting and 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 um, and measurement and everything um, has to f flow into, the, you know, all of private equity, not just into the impact funds. Now, speaking of which, Imogen, you wrote this week in your institutional impact column about the $4.5 billion investment that the investment office of the University of California made in the Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust. Now, institutional investors like the University of California allocate big ticket investments to asset managers like Blackstone all the time. Why did you write about this one? What sets it apart? Yes. So in January, and January 3rd, actually, um, the investment office of the University of California announced that they'd made this $4.5 billion in a in BREIT, which is a real estate investment trust that Blackstone launched in 2017. What makes what made this deal sort of interesting to the market was that there was some chatter in the last quarter of last year that BREIT was in trouble because effectively what happened was with rising interest rates, you had rising interest rates and falling house prices, and then they received a bunch of redemptions because again, this was a, it was a retail fund um, and they had liquidity issues meeting these redemptions. So what happened was um, Jagdeep, the CIO of the University of California's investment office, according to him, called up Blackstone and was like, hey, I see you have a problem. And they struck this deal whereby the UC would come in, invest what was originally 4 billion, but became 4.5 billion in BREIT in return for Blackstone putting up an additional billion dollars, 
which would act as effectively a backstop. And the, the language is a little unclear and most people have not obviously seen the term sheet. So there's a little confusion about exactly what the deal is, but effectively it looks like some kind of guarantee of at least 11.6, I think, percent return over the next six years. So everyone looked at this and was like, wow, this looks like an amazing deal. You know, Jagdeep's getting a guaranteed 11.6% return in part of his real estate investment. What then happened, however, was that there was a massive amount of pushback from the unions whose money the UC Regents is investing, at least whose pension money is being invested. And the, the unions are protesting because they see Blackstone as being predatory and coming in and taking over people's houses um, and having a negative impact on communities. So there was a investment committee meeting for the UC regions at which all of this was discussed. And it started with a series of public comments from union members talking about how Blackstone had taken over um, this housing low-income housing complex in San Diego um, and that people were getting pushed out. Something that Blackstone, by the way, says isn't true. Um, so there was this criticism of Blackstone coming from the unions, but in the discussion in the investment committee meeting itself, basically Jagdeep gave the floor to Blackstone and allowed them to talk about all the amazing work they're doing in working with people in affordable housing. So there's this interesting tension between what happens when Blackstone comes in and starts making investments in low-income communities. And there's two different countercurrents here. One is the criticism that we've talked about before about how these private equity firms are coming in and buying up affordable housing, which means that individuals can no longer afford housing. So they're sort of caused the housing market to become increasingly expensive. And so people like school teachers and other pension beneficiaries can't afford to buy houses. And that continues to be a trend and an issue. Secondly, however, but, but if you actually listen to, again, what Blackstone was saying in the investor committee meeting, that's not what they're necessarily doing with affordable housing. They're actually trying to invest in affordable housing, which is, you know, sounds like an impact investment. The issue is, can you actually invest in affordable housing and get the kinds of rates of return that Blackstone needs to get because they've promised their investors that and also because they charge high fees and in turn, their executives make a lot of money. So can the private equity model, which ultimately has sort of become a funnel for making a bunch of rich white men even richer, is that the best mechanism by which to be investing in affordable housing? What was so interesting about this story, Imogen, which got a great reaction and it, it was a, a, a tour de force in many ways, was that you linked all these these issues, the the high fees. I think Stephen Schwartzman uh, made something like a billion one in, in 2021, uh, one of the biggest paydays in Wall Street history. Um, and as you said, um, uh, this fund was actually facing some trouble and, and the, the rest of the asset management industry kind of rallied around and, and gave Blackstone a bailout and, and, and got high fees and, um, and, and, and who's left holding the bag may be the, um, the, the, the tenants. Yeah. And there's no, there's no guardrails on basically the wealth creation, right? You're, you're taking public pension money, investing it with private asset managers who are then getting federal revenues in terms of 
Section 8 housing credits and other types of credits. And that they're, they're putting all of these pieces together to create, to generate an investment return, which again, in turn, does benefit their investors. And they would say, you know, we're protecting pensions, but like it's a defined benefit by definition. If it's a state benefit, it's already protected. And they're also generating profits for themselves. And because, you know, Blackstone is so huge and the, their fee structure is so generous, it becomes this massive wealth transfer to a group of very rich people at the top of the heap, which just exacerbates the whole income inequality problem that's causing these issues in the first place. And if you roll the, you know, roll roll the tape back even further, part of the reason we have this income inequality problem that we have in the country right now anyway goes back to the subprime mortgage crisis where, you know, banks and other institutions were encouraging, you know, lower and middle income people to buy houses that they couldn't afford. Imogen, it's, it, it's, it's funny. After the story came out, I had a conversation with somebody at one of these fund managers that uh, had been trying for months, actually, to, to, to get in and to get an allocation from the UC office. Um, and you'd think, oh, oh, they're exactly the, the folks that you were, in a sense, championing, you know, that could get allocations other, you know, somebody other than Blackstone. But his uh, reaction to the story was, wow, Jagdeep uh, 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 Singh Bacher got a cut, cut such a great deal. He got 11 and a quarter percent guaranteed. You know, wouldn't everybody want to do that? Well, yeah. And I think that's the headline they were hoping for. Right. And there's some merit to that if indeed that is an 11.6% guaranteed return, which some people have questioned. But, you know, I think the big issue here is fiduciary duty, right? And, you know, an investment office looks at itself and it says, you know, our, our job is to get the best and highest return we possibly can for our capital. So if I can get an 11.6% guaranteed return from Blackstone for this, this REIT, like, I... I'm a great fiduciary. I'm doing my job. What they don't think about and they don't see as their job is, and to a certain extent, they're right. What are the what are the consequences of that to my beneficiaries? Right? If I'm then making investments, if Blackstone is turning around and making buying up again housing, which means that teachers in Berkeley or can't afford housing. How am I like that has a direct impact on my beneficiaries? And there's there again, we've talked about this before, there's an agency problem. There's sort of a gap between how the investment office thinks about these things and the impact that that those investments might have both on their beneficiaries and society at large. But is this an indictment of the whole private equity move into impact, which we just referenced earlier, you know, is 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 gaining is gaining gaining steam? I mean, you know, you said yes, investments in affordable housing, you know, that could come off as an impact investment. What about investments in education or financial inclusion or 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 any number of sectors where the private equity folks are coming in and saying we want to support the sector, but we also want to get our, you know, double, our, our high teens, you know, mid-20s kind of uh, returns. So I think you have to be really careful about it, right? Like just because something is a social investment doesn't mean it's necessarily like good for society. And I think we have to talk about the fact that like some people are getting, like, again, I don't have a problem with people getting rich in asset management. I don't have a problem with people getting rich 
from asset managing public pension money. But I think when you start thinking through the extreme concentration of wealth by people like you know, Steve Schwartzman and like Ken Griffin, you know, it becomes problematic. And I don't like, I don't think that we are benefiting our system or our society by just funneling more money to Blackstone or Apollo or whoever it is. And that isn't a part of the conversation because it's considered you're, you know, you're not going to get fired for hiring Blackstone or Apollo or any of these established managers. And it wasn't a problem 30x years ago when these firms were founded because they didn't have a cajillity billion in assets under management. So the fee structure made sense. Yeah, they were getting rich, but it wasn't insane. And now that is no longer the case, but we have closed the door on other managers. Get to, to your point about your manager that you spoke to. Other managers don't get the same opportunity and the same bite of the apple because fiduciary duty says basically stick with what you know. So we've created this cycle and we're we're failing to recognize that like we are the problem, right? That that by creating even more inequality, we just perpetuate perpetuate the problems that impact is trying to solve. And just because Blackstone might do like a little bit of good on the side doesn't detract from the bigger issues. And I do think that you have to have a conversation about returns, right? And how much, if you talk to most people doing affordable housing, they will say, it's very hard to generate, you know, it's very hard to generate Blackstone-like returns in this sector. And they'll also say, it's really hard to do it if you try and build new affordable housing. You can only actually do it through converting existing housing stock into affordable housing. So given that, you have to ask, and I'm again, I'm not saying there's anything nefarious to it, but you have to ask yourself, what is Blackstone doing? And how are they able to achieve this? And is it a good idea to have unlimited return expectations when there's no cushion, right? We're talking about people who don't make a lot of money. And you can see this as well. It's actually interesting if you go back and you watch other UC Regents meet, investment committee meetings, they've been talking a lot about investing in student housing. And it's the same question. Should you, you know, there's an affordability concern around student and faculty housing. So should you be having people come in who are trying to extract as much profit as possible building that housing? And that the investment office is keen to be doing this kind of investing. And again, there's this tension between we're not a charity, we're a for-profit investor, but we as the investment office can do this better because we're not charging fees. And then next thing you know, they're rocking up with Blackstone. Blackstone's charging a huge amount of fees to invest in, amongst other things, student housing. So something is off here, right? Between how investment offices think about the, the investment offices think about their world in isolation. They think about it in this idea of the sort of fiduciary duty sort of cocoon. And in reality, there's a much greater impact that they're having, not just on the world, but on their communities. And this and this isn't to say that like Blackstone can't do impact investing or the private equity managers can't do impact investing. But you can't it's sort of to your point previously, you can't think about this in a vacuum. You've got to look at it in the broader context of what they're doing generally and what returns they're trying to get what fees they're making and who ultimately gets rich well imogen speaking of wealth creation in this space 
you know, we had talked earlier in the podcast about the worker ownership initiative and the idea of uh, empowering more workers with equity stakes in their companies. David, uh, what's your take on that approach of, uh, you know, how do we help with the wealth creation uh, of of employees and not just of the private equity managers? Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting case, Brian, because one of the attributes of this new wave of worker ownership transition financing funds um, is that they are an alternative to private equity because the other uh, entity that many of these business owners could sell out to, they, the, the business owner is aging and wants to retire, um, got, a, got a small business that, that makes decent money, but is not a, you know, needs, needs to get out somehow. The, the other obvious buyer is private equity and they're going in and buying up a lot of these companies. And so the worker ownership uh, transition funds are essentially competing with private equity. And so the question, the policy question be, becomes, how can workers, you know, with their, you know, somewhat meager resources, you know, compete with with the well-heeled private equity funds? And there's a, a bunch of policy uh, planks that help um, even, the, even the, the, the playing field, some of them being tax advantages, and then another being a kind of new, new forms of, of guarantees and, and other things that can help um, more lenders, you know, get into this game. But it's specifically being pitched now as an antidote to private equity, as an antidote to this kind of consolidation that Imogen was talking about uh, of wealth in this country. So Imogen, what are your final thoughts on, on this topic? I mean, I think the the move to addressing business equity is in some ways it's the other side of the same coin, right? Like as home ownership moves out of reach, you know, for a lot of middle-class America, like business ownership and business equity is the other way to achieve, you know, wealth. And it's the same question of, you know, how do you, how do people achieve the American dream in a society and an economy which is becoming increasingly divided economically. All right. I think that's a good place to end it. Thank you so much for your thoughts. As always, Imogen Rose-Smith. Thank you. And David Bank. Thank you, Brian. And, and thank you, Imogen. And thank you for the column this week. No, it was, it was fun to write. I'm not sure how fun it was to edit. <laughs> Uh, well, I think that's going to do it for this week's Impact Briefing. You can read more about these stories at impactalpha.com. Thanks to Imogen, David, and our producer extraordinaire, Isaac Silk. Ready to try Impact Alpha? Sign up for Impact Alpha Open, totally free, directly at impactalpha.com. Want to go deeper? Grab a subscription and get full access to Impact Alpha, including the award-winning morning brief and our popular Agents of Impact calls. Just go to impactalpha.com slash subscribe and choose an annual subscription. I'm Brian Walsh. Be sure to check back for next week's Impact Briefing. Until then, take good care. <laughs>